In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome to the Politically Georgia podcast. I'm Greg Bluestein, joined this week by political insider Patricia Murphy. We are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and together we keep an eye on everything going on in state politics and its impact in Washington. Good morning, Patricia. Good morning, Greg. Well, it is a great morning because in a few hours we're going to the Braves World Series Celebration Parade. Uh, this is a political podcast, and so we won't too, talk too much about the Braves, but it was a really f- interesting, fun week. So, I shouldn't say interesting. It was an amazing week celebrating the Braves World Series victory, and I never thought I would be celebrating that victory at an election watch party, but that's what happened. I was at Felicia Moore's party, you were at Kasim Reed's party, and we both got to watch the ninth inning of the Braves. Yes, it was amazing. And because I was over at the Kasim Reed watch party, that was the, um, those were the only cheers that we heard of the Kasim Reed watch party were for the Braves. Um, The rest of it was a rather subdued affair. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to all that fun um, later on in the show. But first, we can talk about Governor Kemp, because he had only had one major public appearance this week, but he had a lot to say. After telling Americans in July of 2021 that it was not the role of the federal government to mandate COVID-19 vaccine, the Biden administration is now forcing hardworking Georgians to choose between their livelihoods and a vaccine. Now, Georgia will join a group of other Republican-led states suing the federal government over its vaccine mandate. This Joe Biden mandate is a recipe for financial disaster. For businesses who do work with the federal government, this executive action makes it more likely you could lose employees to other competitors. Even if you can keep the workers you have, congratulations, Joe Biden has now made you into the vaccine police. The vaccine police, Patricia. This is one of those issues that that Republicans, including Brian Kemp, are tapping into to sort of motivate and energize their base ahead of a 2022 election that's going to be pretty tough for Republicans here. Yeah, so also it's not just Brian Kemp, but of course it's Attorney General Chris Carr who is doing Mm -hmm. this as well. And I think that uh, Republicans across the country, and we know Republicans here in Georgia see that vaccine mandate as sort of the ultimate example of government overreach. I know they have polling that shows that. Uh, It is extremely galvanizing for the Republican base. And even on the legal piece of it, I think there probably is a case to be made. um, And we know that the um, governor and attorney general are going to make that. It's one of those things that um, policy-wise and political 
politically wise, if that's a, if that's a phrase, um, really works for them. So we're going to see them hammer this um, again and again. Um, also, we know Kemp is really keeping an eye on his own Republican primary and wants to be making sure that he is keeping a very close touch with those Republican base voters. Yeah, this press conference was held the day after the Tuesday election, which in Georgia was was not great for Democrats. You saw um, uh, uh, Democratic challengers in municipal elections around metro Atlanta suburbs go down in flames in Sandy Springs, in Marietta, in Johns Creek, in Tucker. Um, you know, d- Democrats were able to claim some victories in city council races and, and other uh, mayoral races around the state. But in metro Atlanta suburbs, it was a rough, rough day. And of course, you also had Glenn Youngkin, uh, the Virginia Republican, d- leading a resurgence, a GOP resurgence in, in Virginia, uh, defeating Terry McAuliffe and uh, and really a slate of Democratic candidates there in a state that is solidly blue. So a really, really rough week for Democrats who are trying to put a brave face on it. They're trying to, you know, uh, uh, highlight some of the some of the gains they made, but it was a really rough week. And you, we're going to expect Governor Kemp and other Georgia Republicans to sort of try to embrace that Glenn Youngkin strategy. Yes, I would say that the Democrats are alarmed um, at the least about what happened this week. And it wasn't just in Virginia. If you look at races in New Jersey, um, in uh, more rural parts of New York and Long Island, um, and then definitely here in Georgia, we saw a number of mayor's races in the suburbs where we had some Republican aligned um, incumbents and they really held off any challengers, um, any especially progressive challengers. So uh, they were nonpartisan elections here in Georgia, but the incumbent mayors who were uh, Republican aligned and supported by the Republican parties just had a terrific night. And they were in those suburbs in Cobb County and Gwinnett County where Democratic gains have been absolutely essential to keeping this state and winning it, especially in 2020 and 2021. And so the Democrats, if they lose those suburbs, if they don't have the same kind of appeal that they thought they did just a year ago, that is going to be a huge problem for 2022. So the Republicans uh, had a great night. Democrats are going to need to recalibrate, I think. Yeah, Patricia, that's that's a great point because even though these were nonpartisan races, the, the Democrats made clear that they were competing up and down the ticket, and this is their way of building their bench. And so, you know, in, in, in 2018, you saw a lot of Democrats run for state legislative seats in Republican-held territories that they never even bothered to contest before and win, you know, a big group of them, about a dozen of them. And this was the strategy in 2021 was to compete in a lot of these mayoral races and city council races where incumbents who were conservative had never really faced challengers or stiff challengers. And they competed. They competed in Sandy Springs. And in Johns Creek, there was an entire slate of Democrats that ran, as well in Tucker and in Marietta and in Gwinnett County suburbs, uh, as municipalities and, and elsewhere in the state, McDonough. Um, and in most of them, not all of them, but in most of them, either the Republican-leaning cons- incumbents held or Republicans ended up winning those open seats. And so, um, you know, I, Democrats put out a press release saying they, net, they netted about a couple dozen seats around the state, you know, because you're including Cairo, Georgia, and some smaller municipalities, um, Cuthbert. You know, they, they had some successes, especially in, in smaller rural cities, um, particularly black majority cities in, in some of uh, in some parts of rural Georgia. But in metro Atlanta suburbs, where the, most of the attention was focused 
like Sandy Springs. Dante Carter got blown out of the water by, by, by incumbent mayor Rusty Paul, who was the former GOP chair in the state of Georgia. So it was a rough night, and we both talked to Democrats who said basically they've got to learn some lessons from this, including the fact that Washington gridlock better, better, uh, better have an answer soon because um, without, with, with the infrastructure bill and the social spending bill still stalled, um, at least at the moment of this recording, it's really tough for Democrats to communicate um, what Joe Biden's doing with gridlock in Washington. Yeah, that's exactly right. The Democrats really don't have anything to show to voters um, that they're ready to talk about. Um, Democrats, uh, right now, it's a dynamic in Washington of Democrats versus Democrats. It's Democrats stalling these bills of their own party. And so to me, it reads like a party that doesn't really have its act together. They have a majority, a close majority, but they are not able to really convert on that and use it to pass their priorities. So your average bear who's a voter is saying, well, if you're not able to do what, even what you want to do and you have the majorities, where's the governing? Where is the leadership? Um, you know, where's that party that was supposed to be able to make government function? Um, so I think that is damaging. I think also a larger issue for Democrats all across the country and definitely here in Georgia is who are they without Donald Trump on the ticket? Um, it is so galvanizing. It was so galvanizing in 2020 for the Democrats, um, for independent and even some Republican voters to come out and vote against Donald Trump. So Joe Biden gets elected. Without Donald Trump on the ticket, um, who are the Democrats? Who are you voting for if you're not just voting to get Trump out of office? And that's a question they're gonna have to really ask themselves and articulate much more clearly to voters. Yeah, you saw um, Terry McAuliffe bring up Donald Trump incessantly in the closing days of the race. He had a mixed and muddled message throughout the closing uh, weeks of the campaign, but he tried to make it all about Donald Trump. He talked about, um, he, he mentioned Donald Trump's name more than a dozen times in his in his final campaign rally, the eve of the election. And then, you know, Glenn Youngkin, the, the Republican governor-elect in Virginia, had an arm's length approach to Trump. He he welcomed Trump's support. He 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 touted Trump's agenda, but he never held a rally with Donald Trump. Um, and so he showed a way that Republicans can win and run, sort of a roadmap to win a, a purple state. But that roadmap won't be easy to emulate in Georgia. Not with Donald Trump obsessing over the state. Not with him. Uh, on a vendetta against Governor Kemp for, for Governor Kemp's refusal to illegally overturn the election defeat in, in, in Georgia, not with him endorsing four statewide candidates. So it is a path, it is a model for how Republicans can succeed in the Trump era, but it is also an imperfect one for, for Georgia Republicans because it will be hard to, 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 to neutralize Donald Trump in a race in Georgia. Well, that's exactly right. Donald Trump never campaigned in Virginia for or with Glenn Youngkin. Donald Trump has already held a rally here in Georgia against Brian Kemp. And so while Virginia, they just had the luxury up there, Virginia Republicans, of not really having to deal with Donald Trump unless they wanted to. It was sort of a Donald Trump buffet. You know, you could leave it on the buffet if you didn't want if you didn't want it. That is not going to happen here in Georgia. It's very clear. And so um, while in Virginia, Donald Trump was not on the ballot, it probably is going to feel like Donald Trump is on the ballot down here in Georgia because he's going to make it feel like he's on the ballot. 
and he was not on the ballot in the Senate runoffs in 2021, but it sure felt like he was. He was still really the issue. And the Republicans, um, a number of the Republicans who are getting into these statewide races are doing so at the request of Donald Trump, um, doing so uh, with his full support. And he has just already played such a huge role in these Republican primaries that we're going to absolutely continue to see that. Yeah, a reminder that Donald Trump is not only has he endorsed four candidates in statewide office in Georgia, he's disavowed two others. He has said yes. he is he is personally campaigning against Brian Kemp, and he's also disavowed Butch Miller, who's running for lieutenant governor. Um, I get the reason why he's, you know, campaigning against Trump, uh, against Kemp because he's made an enemy of, out of Kemp and said he was ashamed to have supported him. The Butch Miller thing is is a little more questionable. I'm not really sure why. Um, I think the only a major incident I can remember between those two men was um, I asked Butch Miller uh, whether or not it mattered if Donald Trump backed one of his, his rival, uh, Burt Jones, in the lieutenant governor race, and he said something like, well, the last time I looked, Mar-a-Lago wasn't in Georgia, it was in Florida. So for that minor offense, it looks like Butch Miller lost um, or made an enemy out of, out of Donald Trump. Yeah, for sure. And of course, uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger will be on the ballot. And uh, he's really made a an enemy out of Donald Trump. And he is currently on a book tour, uh, kind of trash talking Donald Trump and not trash talking, but just saying exactly what happened. And in Donald Trump's uh, opinion of him, um, that's just not okay. It's just not okay to say what Donald Trump did um, in his phone call to Brad Raffensperger asking him to find 11,000 votes. It's just not okay that Brad Raffensperger didn't overturn the results of the election. And so that's really what those Republican primaries are going to be litigated over. It's not going to be over some major policy difference between Republicans um, because they're all conservatives. It's going to be over how close are you to Donald Trump and did you stand up for him the last time and are you going to stand up for him the next time? And that is a preview of 2022. When we get back from a break, we'll talk about the elections in 2021. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back. This is the Politically Georgia podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, here with Patricia Murphy, the AJC political insider columnist. You were at Kasim Reed's election watch party. I was at Felicia Moore's. I didn't have much drama other than the Braves. <laughs> we, we knew Felicia Moore was pretty much guaranteed a spot in the runoff. But the fascinating part of the election night was the, who was going to be the number two. And the conventional wisdom said that former mayor Kasim Reed, who had been the mayor for two terms, who had high, high name recognition, who had a huge fundraising fundraising advantage, 
who had a, a powerful bully pulpit and a, and a message, who brought his combative political cutthroat politics to this race, and who had a lot of celebrity endorsements. The conventional wisdom was he was going to be the number two. All the polls showed that. Um, the, the city hall wags kind of were indicating that. But it was Andre Dickens who made the late surge to come just ahead of Kasim Reed by about 600 votes and claim that number two spot. That's exactly right. And I think that um, Kasim Reed started his race with just a ton of momentum. I mean, he raised a million dollars practically overnight. Um, and so I think the conventional wisdom was based in some really logical um, deductions. Um, however, uh, those uh, the, the role of his past administration, the fact that a number of his former staffers are indicted or headed to jail, he just couldn't shake that. And the other candidates in that race really slammed him with it. And we kept seeing attack ads um, either on the airwaves or to people's phones directly, really painting uh, Kasim Reed as somebody as untrustworthy um, and as somebody who um, himself uh, could have committed crimes. I mean, he's never been accused officially of a crime, um, but so many of his former staffers have been and they've been found guilty. So I think it was just impossible for him at the end of the day to shake that with voters. And um, he also, I think in his time as mayor, you described him as combative, um, which some uh, some people thought that was the right way to lead the city, but he really left a long trail of, um, uh, I don't know if we call them enemies, but people who were not rooting for him. And mm -hmm. so we saw a number of high profile endorsements, um, including Shirley Franklin for Andre Dickens. Um, and they were very, uh, very sincere and very um, personal and I think that um, it helped uh, Andre Dickens enormously that he had some high-profile endorsements. Um, and then, of course, uh, Felicia Moore, uh, city council president, is quite well known. And so they really were able to um, uh, really uh, paint themselves as trustworthy and Kasim Reed as not. And that won at the end of the day. Yeah, I'd, I'd call them enemies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you saw a lot of the knives come out to social media. Um, we, we uh, you know, the AJC poll showed some of the depths of Kasim Reed's struggles. I just didn't think it would it would play out this early. I thought it would play out in the runoff rather than the the first round. In the runoff, you'd see like an anyone but Kasim coalition rally around, um, you know, Felicia Moore. That's what that's kind of what I thought would happen, and then Felicia Moore would kind of romp to a victory um, because Kasim Reed's negatives in these poll in the AJC poll and other public polls were above fifty percent, huge numbers. No matter what he tried to do. Um, you know, uh, soft focus TV ads, a focus on crime, uh, reimagining re himself um, or framing himself as a doting father, um, the celebrity endorsements, um, the tough talking, combative nature, or, you know, embracing that and saying, hey, I know you might not want to have a beer with me, but I'll be the guy who makes sure you can have a beer safely with whoever you want to have a beer with, right? All that failed. It failed to bring down his negatives. And, and in the days after the race, I got calls from former very close allies of, of Kasim Reed who, who said, if you've got a 95% name recognition but can't get much more than 20% of the vote, you're sunk. I mean, whether it's in the first round or the second round, you're not going to win a race like this if you have that sort of universal name visibility and yet still are, uh, are, are, are you know, loathed by the electorate. So it was a really tough night for Kasim Reed. Who, who's, we're not sure where his political future goes, goes from here. He didn't give too many hints. Uh, we're not sure if he's going to endorse either um, Andre Dickens 
or Felicia Moore, or if either of those candidates want his endorsement, to be honest. Um, but uh, we do know that his comeback tour, his comeback bid has, has, come, has collapsed. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I think uh, it's so important also to remember that Atlanta just has so many new voters. There are so many young new faces in the city. Um, not only were they not here for Kasim Ray's administration, he really comes from an older school of politics and frankly, an old, older school of policing. Um, and he has said that I'm going to fight crime, but in a post George Floyd world. He never quite articulated exactly what that meant. Um, and I think for younger voters and more progressive voters in the city, uh, they needed more answers than that to really understand how to, how will that differ from the eight years when you were mayor. Um, and so uh, I think that he just didn't make the case with those new voters either and certainly didn't inter- introduce himself in a way that connected with them. Patricia, we can hear your dog in the background. I love it because you, we've heard my dog in the background. <laughs> He's so bad. I'm sorry. What, what's your dog's name, by the way? His name is Sailor. And the best part is that he is terrified of water. We, we had no idea when we named him, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Charlie and Sailor will have to hang out uh, one day soon. Um, I'm sorry. Well, well, before we go, too, I want to talk a little bit about the, the matchup ahead. Because, again, it was a matchup that not many people um, expected. I will say... And I've said this many, many times um, since since Tuesday, but um, Andre Dickens was one of those people who believed, right? Andre Dickens' campaign called this thing. Um, they peaked at the perfect time. They capitalized on on issues that really dogged uh, former Mayor Reed, including his handling of homes and, and use of eminent domain to prevent flooding in the People's Town neighborhood. Um, the, 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 the corruption cloud that sort of uh, shadowed Kasim Reed the entire time. His polling firm, 2020 Insight, basically called this race. Um, they had the poll, the poll numbers right. They had him about in the mid-20s. He ended up coming in around low to mid-20s. Um, so right there in front of Kasim Reed. Um, so Andre Dickens, you know, never, never gave up on himself. And now he's in the second position of this race. And there's a pretty stark geographic split when you look at who, who voted where, for whom, right? North Atlanta overwhelmingly supported Felicia Moore. South Atlanta backed both Dickens and um, Kasim Reed overwhelmingly. Um, Dickens cleaned up in DeKalb County, did very well in the eastern Atlanta portion of the city. Um, and so already you're going to start seeing Andre Dickens and his supporters kind of paint Felicia Moore as the buckhead candidate, as the elitist as, as someone who doesn't speak for the, the soul of the city. And it's going to be really interesting how, how they try to paint, her, paint Felicia Moore, who's a, a black female, as the sort of elitist candidate. That's exactly right. And I think also it's going to be fascinating to see where those Reed voters go. Mm-hmm. Um, he obviously didn't have enough voters to get into the runoff, but he was right there, right behind Dickens. And that was, um, you know, a big chunk of the electorate. And we'll have to see if they split up amongst themselves or if uh, Felicia Moore or Andre Dickens can make a case that appeals to those specific read voters and I think that'll be a really important test for both of them and um, I'm sure they're going to be digging into the numbers and trying to see where those read voters were um, they would love to just get those in mass and just uh, lump it onto their totals and just win this thing exactly well that is all for today's show you can read about these issues and plenty more in the AJC and in our daily newsletter the jolt it's our in-depth It's our in-depth political newsletter that Patricia, myself, and Tia Mitchell collaborate on every day. 
Patricia, thank you to you and Sailor for joining us today. (laughs) Have a great weekend. Thanks, and go Braves. Go Braves. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.